All right, everybody, welcome. This is the breakout. What is the gospel? We're on page 44 and 45. Did you find your way there? Hopefully. Thank you for being here. Um, so this is um, interesting in the sense that um, we are, this breakout is deliberately meant to look like this. This is on purpose. So look around the room and say hi to if you don't know the people that are you're sitting with, or maybe you do know the people you're sitting with. Um, very deliberately, it's for the purpose of dialogue as well as Q and A. Um, uh, the reason being that we, we'd love for it to work. That as I am speaking, as you, if you have a thought, I am completely delighted and comfortable with you saying, "Hang on a second, could I ask a question about that?" Right. We're also going to leave some time towards the end for you to dialogue about anything that. Um, may have provoked you in the session. Okay, so far so good. So let me practice what I just said. Does anybody have a question about that so far? <laughs> oh, what a great question! Do you see? There's always the first person to ask a question is always unusual. How much time at the end? I would guess five to ten minutes. Yeah, that's a great question. See, that's how it works. Anybody else have? It's just by way of housekeeping, are we good to go? You guys understand how this works? All right. Let me pray, and then we will begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you just for the joy and privilege it is to have this conference like this. Uh, We do pray that you would come and illuminate our minds and our hearts. Help us to see this one essential message. Um, Help us to understand and to see truly wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Terrence, would you be able to grab that door whenever you get a chance? Thank you. So again, the title of this breakout is What is the Gospel? This is probably the most simplest title Breakout, I think. I think that I did I win the prize for that for the for the for the conference. And again, this is very very deliberate um, for us to camp out and to think about the foundational message of the Bible. There, we've had a lot of breakouts. We've had a lot of main sessions, and it's certainly possible for you to go to a conference about hope out of heartache. And we 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 want you to hear much of the comfort of the scriptures this weekend. We also want you to hear the absolute essential message that you must hear this weekend. We call that the gospel, also known as the good news about Jesus. Maybe I could illustrate that for you. My family, um, one sort of interesting thing about me is that my family is from and they still live in Jamaica. My parents do. And every time I go, which, you know, you're like, oh, Dave, you have to go visit your parents in the winter in Jamaica, you poor, poor person. It's, it's a delightful thing that I have. There's a place that I like to visit every time I go to Jamaica. And it's not where you think. It's not the epic beaches, though we we like that as well. There's this one place that I go to almost every single time. It's the ruins of this massive house, right? It's this gigantic house. And, you know, there's always a story every time you see a house in ruins. The story, I believe, goes like this, is that years ago there were some incredibly wealthy people And they decided to have their vacation home right at this beachfront property in Jamaica. Uh, I suppose they did a lot of architectural planning. But today, the ruins stand there, and it's a tourist attraction. They call it the ruins of folly. (laughs) The reason being is as they were constructing this monstrosity, they made one foundational error. as the story goes anyway, is as they were mixing the concrete, they just decided, well, the ocean's right here, you know. Let's just use the salt water to mix the concrete for the house and for the foundation and for the whole structure. Today, you can still go and visit it. It is a massive, massive failure of a structure 
with a lot of elaborate planning, it's sort of a picture of a lot of planning with a foundational error. You get the picture? And that is the reason why we've chosen to have this breakout here, because I do think a similar thing happens today as people go to conferences about God, think about God, perhaps even sing about God and seek to know God. It's possible to to get very, very excited and and make a foundational error as it comes to the Bible. I, I know there's a lot of information in the scriptures, in the Bible. I want to submit to you that all of that, much of that, rests on the one essential message of the Bible. You get what I'm saying? I think you're tracking with the analogy. There's a lot of academic interest in the Bible. For instance, many of your college campuses probably even have uh, a religious studies department, for instance. And there are a lot of big brains surrounding study and interest in it, but there are actually fewer that believe the message contained in the Bible. There's even a lot of academic debate about what it means to even, quote, be evangelical. Have you heard that phrase before? Whether or not someone is an evangelical or not. And maybe you've heard that, and it's one of these labels that can mean anything from Bible-believing to fundamentalist to anti-intellectualism to religious jihadist. I don't know what that word means anymore. But right now, there are very few people understand the word, the evangel of evangelical. Evangel is the same word as gospel, which translates to good news. I might even be able to to bet that some of you, perhaps, not all of you, grew up in some sort of home where God was talked about to some degree or another. And honestly, I've seen a lot of young people come to college, and this whole idea about God and Jesus and the Bible, it's like blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And it's heard, but maybe you've never been moved by it. The goal of this breakout is to make sure you don't miss the foundational message of the Bible uh, and, and to make sure and, or, or to help you, maybe if you have heard it, to actually for you to build your life on it and to be captivated by it and to be moved by it. It's at the top of your sheet, right? Look at your, the top of page 45. This is going to be your trusty handout. At the top of page 45, this is the truth we must savor. I printed it there just to be explicit as we dig in. It is this is that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he calls them to himself through faith and repentance. That means that by his grace, he saved, past tense, continues to save, present tense, and will one day save his people. I'd like to submit to you that that is an essential message of the Bible, and it is a truth We must savor. I want to help you do that. And to keep it simple, what we're going to do is we're going to study one verse in the New Testament. Got it? We're going to study it in context. It's printed there. It's on page 45. I'd I'd like us to read this. I want us to think deeply about this. and, And perhaps you'll understand the foundation. And maybe some of you, for the first time, will come alive to that. Or maybe even we'll begin to savor it. So Colossians 1, you see it printed there. Does everybody have that on page 45? Yeah, if you have a Bible and prefer, you could read it. Um, the whole chapter as well is also printed. The entirety of it is on page 44. So we're going to need both page 44 and page 45. But let me read again to you what it says right there. It says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, that's short enough. I think we could probably even read that again. Jensica, could I even pick on you? You're at the back. Could you read that for us again? Just that same verse. It's two verses. I'm sorry. 13 and 14 at the top of your sheet. Awesome. So let's put the magnifying glass over that verse. This is in the Bible. Let me give you a quick context. This is in a letter. We call the letter Colossians because it's a, it's a New Testament letter that is written by Paul to a small church in an ancient city called Colossae. Got it? So this is a, a snippet out of one of his letters that he is writing to people who believe in Jesus It's in a city, it's a small church in a city called Colossae. And I've printed the context for you on page 44. We're going to reference that fairly often. But this is the first sentence in the letter of Colossians where God is the subject of the sentence. That's why the the first word of that verse is he, right? So that he is talking about God. You guessed it. So what I want to suggest to you is in this verse is a deep understanding of the gospel. And there are three things to unfold. If, if either you don't know what it means to be a Christian, or you are not moved by the truth that you were taught as a kid, I want to give you three things which might operate like three rungs on a ladder to understand this verse. So what is the gospel? First thing, first thing, it's on page 45, is to feel the terror of being lost. To feel the terror of being lost. You see that in that verse? Because, as Jensica read for us, it says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So, in describing God's work, Paul uses this verb to to deliver. Don't think Amazon Prime there. That word could be translated rescue or or, or salvation, save. That's a common construct in the Bible, the way this is written. So, when Jesus says, deliver us, the next thing is evil. Right, Deliver us from evil or save us from this thing. Paul says, who's going to save me from this wretched body of death? Often in the New Testament, this word deliver comes right next to something that is just really, really, really shocking and really, really evil. And that's what we have here. Deliver, and then there's this image of a domain of darkness. So apparently Christianity is about being delivered or saved out of a domain of darkness. Do you know that that's what it means to be a Christian? There's inherent in this Christian message a supernatural, quote, salvation, rescue, or deliverance. You see it on your outline right there. What this means, by way of implication, tell me if the logic holds up, is that humanity is spiritually enslaved. Because there's this thing, according to the Bible, called the domain of darkness. And I don't know if Paul could have picked a creepier image to describe the gospel, to, to put God as the subject of the sentence. And I want us to think about this because this is, a, this is a huge claim. He's saying that human beings naturally are spiritually enslaved and live in a domain of darkness. Maybe you've seen news stories that feel like this. In 2013, um, yeah, you guys were all around in 2013. Now, there, was a, there was a news story that I think was absolutely terrifying. In 2013, you know, there was a, a seemingly normal dude 
in Cleveland, Ohio, was arrested. Just out of the blue, they arrested this guy. Um, he was arrested because three women, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus, they were kidnapped by him in 2001. And, and allegedly, they were held captive by this guy in his basement for 10 years. This, this man had been operating uh, what, they, what the news called a house of horrors. For 10 years, he abused them and held them captive. And police eventually, rec- they, they recount the sickening nature of what they found in this guy's basement, this what they call house of horrors. And every year, they have a parade that marks the bravery of these three young women. One of them, allegedly, just found a way out one, one morning in 2013 and just yelled at the top of her lungs, help, right? She escaped, and police stormed in. And they, they, have, a, they have a vigil every, every, every year at this, in, in Cleveland about this because to, to mark the anniversary of their escape and the outrage that we should feel at that sort of oppression, and, and it is right, it is rightly so, that we should feel and recognize what, what happened and, and this sort of oppression that people live under. And I think that's well and good. And, and the sickening nature of that is a little bit, I think, what, what Paul's intention here is as he's writing that image. Do, do you see that? Do you, do you feel that kind of terror? This is written in the Bible because there is another house of horrors that exists in this world, there is an enslavement that the Bible talks about. It's right here and many, many other places. And the the hard thing about spiritual enslavement is that people cannot often perceive that they are enslaved. The domain of darkness is worse than a house of horrors because your perception is a part of the enslavement. You get it? So darkness, Paul writes, this is is his image. And, And it's not a day of darkness. It's not a time of darkness. It is a domain of darkness. It is an oppressive authority and personal inability. And I think that's a weighty image. And here's why I'm I'm really emphasizing this and lingering over it. Because if you were like me and you grew up in a church and you heard about Jesus and that Jesus can save you, it is easy to not perceive what is at stake in the world. It's easy to not to perceive what happens at a conference like this where Jesus and salvation are proclaimed from up front again and again and again. And everybody, maybe if you, if you don't identify as a Christian, everybody has a general sense, even non-Christians, that something is wrong with the world. Would you agree? Everybody has some theory as to what's going on in the world, what's off. And let me tell you, something is really off. Because people pursue ill-gotten gain. What else could we say is wrong? People yell at their children and love their children. People abuse their spouses. Oh, and I'm supposed to love your, your spouse, right? There's, a, there's this spiritual groping around in the dark. Someone just told me that they came back from a trip to Salem, Massachusetts. You know, Salem is notorious for the Salem witch trials. And there's almost a deliberate celebration in that tourist town of all things occult and all things dark. And if you live long enough, what will happen is you'll realize that all the imagery in the Bible of darkness They're not making this up. You can walk around and see that people truly do grope around in the dark. And our problems are are, are far deeper than just ignorance. 
And if we could just double everybody's resources, I don't think that would quite solve the problem. The reason being, this is the Bible's message, under people's ignorance is a domain of ignorance. There, there's, a, there's an oppression of soul that people suffer under. And all of the horrors of this world, I could have picked any news story to read to you, really. They point to a soul terror, an internal lostness, and a spiritual groping around in the dark. And all of this culminates in this idea of being separated from God in outer darkness and ultimate darkness that the Bible defines and defends as hell. Uh, Again, I can't dress this up and make it say something else. But the good news of the Bible is this. Do you see that other word next to domain of darkness? It is that God has delivered you. If you've never felt that or recognized that, this is what Christianity is about. The Bible says that Christianity is about being plucked out of evil. God is taking people such that Satan cannot wreck them. God is rescuing people, bringing people, and it's crossing out of darkness because of the work of Jesus. This is what it means. That's why there's that nice, cute diagram right there, which is saying what it means to be a Christian is to move out of darkness and to behold Jesus. It means to come to Jesus. That's why that invitation has been occurring again and again and again. The theological word for that is called being justified before God by Christ, also known as being saved, being saved. Christians often use that language very rightly, that they are saved by Christ, that they're saved by Christ. And I want to pause here and see if I provoked you enough to ask a question. You could also save it for the end, but we call this justification. It's the work of Jesus that grabs people who are in a domain and control of Satan and brings them to himself. We call that salvation or your justification by God. Here's the plot twist. Ready? So here we go. So step one, I've said, is feel the terror of being lost. I think that's a terrifying image. Now, there's more to the gospel than being past tense saved. Everybody ready? Do you want to go to point number two? There's more to the gospel than being past tense saved. Because there's another, there's a completion to that sentence. Okay, let me read verse 13 again. Look at this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Did you get that? And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So if the first thing that that you see there is that we're supposed to feel the terror of being lost, the second thing is that we're supposed to know the centrality of Jesus himself. This is a present tense thing that's gone on. So let's do a little bit of Bible study. Did you guys notice anything unusual about that verse, about verse 13? Well, it's a contrast verse. It's a contrast verse. On one hand of the contrast, we have domain of darkness. If you were just to follow the literary opposites, what would you write? Not the domain of darkness, but the fill in the blank. Somebody help me out. Something of light, right? The domain or the realm of light. And Paul's like, ha, I got you. I didn't write that. 
He doesn't write domain of darkness. You would expect, I don't know, domain of light or area where there is now light. You're out of that into that. That's the logical contrast. That's what your English teacher would have told you to write. But the work of God, on one hand, is a rescue. See the word rescue? Salvation. On the other hand, another way to talk about the same thing is a transfer. Think about this. This is, a, this is the good news of what it means to be a Christian. This is why oftentimes people are, quote, bored with their faith. Because maybe they talk about past tense being saved. But they've never thought about what it means to be transferred. Listen to the emphasis. Into the kingdom of his beloved son. So get this. Darkness on one side. What's the opposite of the darkness of the world? Jesus, the beloved son. That's incredible. That's a thought-provoking contrast. That is something that has delighted my soul and really helped me understand what it means to be a Christian, maybe like nothing else in the Bible, because it's, it's deliberately said this way, to say you're saved from something. Yes, you're saved from something. But friends, you're also saved for someone. You're saved for someone. And that's what that little other little diagram is supposed to represent in your handouts. It's that all of a sudden now, we're out of darkness, but we live a life where Jesus is central to everything that we do. That Jesus is the main actor. What does this mean? I put a couple of other subpoints there for you. Number one, this means joy in God's Son. Why are Christians so delightful and joyful all the time? You know why? Because we're transferred and Jesus is beloved. That's why. I have pictures all around my house. I have four kids. Um, my wife and I are here and you know, someone's watching our four children right now. If you were to go to my house, you know what you'd see all over my house? There are pictures of my children and my wife. And I try to stay out of the pictures as much as possible, right? <laughs> but they're, all, they're on the refrigerator. They're on the walls. And so you would quickly figure out if you came over to my house. Who are the beloved people? <laughs> right? Like, I love Lincoln. He's not the most, he's not like on my, right? <laughs> not yet anyway. <laughs> he's, he's, working, he's working his way. What, why is that? Well, those are the beloved people. You see wedding pictures of my wife and I. You see children. That's the idea behind that word, the, the beloved, the delighted in. Well, in Christianity... Who is the central figure that this picture is all about? Well, it ain't me. Thank God. It says here that Jesus is God's beloved son. That means Jesus himself, the resurrected one, is the person of focus in Christianity. Do you know that? That Christ is the figure who is worthy of our affection. And the good news, the gospel, the gospel, what is it? It means a disconnect from enslavement because rescue, rescue. You're not oppressed anymore. But being a Christian means that God is rewiring your joy. Like right now, there's a shift in focus because he's transferred us. And it's like we're out of darkness and light is starting to dawn. And one of the first places it dawns is in your affection and what you love and who you love. The central figure is Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, 
right here. That's the, he's, he's the king who's on the throne, and our lives are lived towards him. One very ancient theologian, not very ancient, one ancient, an older theologian says it this way, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The, the enjoyment of God is our proper, and God is the only happiness with which your souls can be satisfied. Man, he says to enjoy God is better than the most pleasant accommodations here. God is better than fathers and mothers and husbands and wives or children or the company of any or of all earthly friends. These things are shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These things, the gifts that we have here, are scattered beams, but like God is the sun. These are streams and God is the fountain. These are drops and God is the ocean. You hear what that man is saying? He's saying what this is saying, that you have been transferred, you've been plucked out, and you've been saved for, so that you also can find Jesus to be beloved, to behold God. And here's why this is important. In my observation, most people think that the Christian life is a list of behaviors that you just got to stop. <laughs> right? Certainly there are things I think you should stop if you become a Christian. But oftentimes, I find college students are engaged in this awkward game of cops and robbers, where it's like, Jesus caught me again. I need to stop. Or, you know, my my accountability, which is always telling me to cease from things. And yes, turn away from sin. But here's here's the second move. Most people don't know what it's like to turn towards, to turn towards Jesus, because he's beloved, right? Most people don't know what it means to love Christ and to treasure God and to have a sense of delight in in him. Jesus is central. And right after this, literally, you know the next verse in Colossians? It's what we've been doing at at worship during our main sessions. It says that him, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, that by Jesus were created All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is like, goes on this rant. All things are created through him and for him. Later on in this letter, Paul's going to say things like this. So if you're a Christian, you know what you should do? Set your minds on things above where Jesus is seated. So do you have that sort of, I don't know, joy? Do you know what that is like? That's the gospel. That's why it's good news, not tolerable news or acceptable news. It's good. We're saved for joy in God's Son. I would also argue we're saved for fruit for God's Son. The centrality of Jesus himself means that the good news of the gospel, that's redundant, the gospel of Jesus means that we have fruit for God's Son. Second thing about the contrast I want to point out. It says we're transferred from a domain into a kingdom. That's fascinating. A domain. Okay, let's. These are two different Greek words. A domain is a realm of authority. Yeah, by someone. But it's eclipsed by a kingdom. A kingdom is a place of rightful rule and reign that exemplifies the value of a king. Let me say that again. A kingdom is a place of rule and reign, and the kingdom exemplifies the values of the king. Right? Paul could have said, yo, domain of darkness, and then domain of Jesus. He could have done that. 
But allegedly, what we see here is that if you belong to Jesus, then you live now in a place that should embody what Jesus loves. God has transferred us. So you could also say that he has transferred us in order to transform us. And look back at the context of this. You see that on page 44, I've deliberately done some highlighting and some underlining, etc. for you so that you, you can know I'm not just soundbiting Paul here. It says here in verse 6 that the, look, at what, look at what Paul said to this church prior. Everybody look at page 44 and where, where I have um, highlighted this, this idea. It says that in verse 6, in verse 6, see it's like semi-highlighted there. It says the gospel has come to you. That's the good news has come to you. As indeed in the world, it is bearing fruit and it is growing. Verse 9 says that we're going to ask you, we want to ask that you be filled with the spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You need to live or walk fully pleasing to him. And here's the same phrase again. Bearing fruit in every good work. Well, verse 11 says, I pray that you be strengthened with power for endurance. What does it mean to be a Christian? Apparently, it means being transformed after you've been transferred. Bearing fruit, bearing fruit, and I know maybe you're not a farmer or you don't know what agricultural image here is. It means the way you live your life on the outside is commensurate with what's happened at the root of your life on the inside. That Christian people, kingdom people, they bear fruit as they're strengthened to endure trials. And and King Jesus is evident in their lives. My kids, one of their silly things that they do, they they love pears. They're into pears recently. Or any sort of fruit is just destroyed in my house. I hardly ever get one. Anyway, the, the joke is, they just like one kid right before I came here, he ate a pear. He's like, oh, man, I love pears. So what they immediately do is, it doesn't matter, the summer, winter, it doesn't matter what the season is, they'll run out in the backyard and they'll like dig a hole and they're like, I got this pear. And they put it in the ground and they bury it and they water it. And they're like, pears tomorrow. (laughs) And it's it's utterly ridiculous. And I just sort of let that be and we'll see what happened, right? (laughs) And, and, you know, well, it's sort of a joke because the conditions and it's going to take time. And, of course, it's silly, but we often use that opportunity to say, hey, you know how that idea of you're so excited for this thing to happen that you bury it and you water it and you wait and you see. The Bible uses that kind of imagery all the time to talk about fruit, both about what your life is like as a Christian, but also what is happening all around the world today. Do you know that? The, the most exciting thing that's going to happen, the thing that should capture the attention of the world you know, it's not like the World Cup next month or the Olympics that happens every four years. It's the fact that Jesus' death, do you know when Jesus died? The Bible says it's like, kind of like a seed that fell into the ground. It uses this analogy. And what happens is that right now, as Jesus emerged from the grave and was resurrected, the gospel right now is bearing fruit all around the world. The the fruit of God, it's right here. It's bearing fruit in verse 6. It is increasing. It is moving the Christian message. The Christian message is moving globally, and the Christian message is moving individually. So if Jesus truly is planted in you, Christian, 
Well, very rightly, just like if the conditions are right, and my kids were anything real farmers, which they are not, you would expect that if the root really takes, you would see some evidence of this on the outside. This is how it works with being a Christian. This is the same gospel. This is the same gospel. The fancy word for that is sanctification. So if the top diagram is a picture of our justification or our being made right with God, that's the theological word for point one. The theological word for point two is that now we live in a kingdom and, and we're being sanctified. We're sanctified or sanctification. We're increasingly made like Jesus until Jesus calls us home. And this is all throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible and all throughout this letter as well. Again, I'm not soundbiting. Paul is going to write in this letter about rejoicing in sufferings. Paul is going to say, just as you receive Jesus Christ, now walk in Jesus Paul's going to say, so put on, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. A simple way to think about that is if you're in the family, we have a family resemblance. simple way to think about that is if you're in the family, Christians have a family business. It's the increase of the gospel. This is what we mean by sanctification. Joy in God's Son, fruit for God's Son. Number three, union with God's Son. Union with God's Son. This is in verse 14. This is in verse 14. It says this, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is deliberately taking very good care to write this because he does not say, and FYI, the price is right. It's like a game show. You get forgiveness. That's not what he said. It's not vending machine Christianity where you, you know, if you come to Jesus, you just sort of get this and peace, be on your way. No, it says in Jesus, we have redemption. Do you notice that? In Christ, we have redemption. Don't picture a vending machine. You should picture actually a wedding. As a pastor, I do a lot of weddings. You know, you know, one of the most powerful moments of a wedding is, right, it's the vows, because vows are a, are a picture of one person joining themselves to the, to the other person. At least the old school vows used to say something like, and just so you know, you know, till death do us part, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, where our lives are going to be united to one another. That's what you should picture. Every time in the New Testament you see the phrase, in Christ, you're, you're not with Christ, you're, you're in Christ, you're joined with him legally and spiritually. And because we're joined to Jesus, because we're united to Jesus, all that is his becomes ours, and all that is ours is put on him. So if you're here and you wrestle with guilt, and you think, how could God ever love me? All the ways that you walked in darkness, all of the unspeakably scary things that you've ever participated in, all of the shame that you are scared to name, well, you know, man, the, if no one's ever told you this, the penalty of those things and the power of those things is decisively broken because Jesus takes them on himself. You, you don't need to be ashamed anymore. His life has paid for it, and his death has ransomed it, and his glorious resurrection, his life, his record is given to you. You know, SpaceX launched a rocket last week. I love watching rocket launches. How powerful is a rocket? They're really powerful. I don't know how many. They still measure rockets in horsepower, which is always funny to me, right? It's like some million horsepower. I don't know how to do that. But 
if you were to strap a piece of gum to a rocket, and so, you know, let's imagine, and it would stick to it, right? Just like a little, if you could, like, you know, that rocket is launching with blasting off, and it, what's going to happen to the gum? Because it is strapped to the rocket, it's going to space. It's out of here, right? Well, let's even keep going. If you strap a trash truck to the rocket and fire that, you know, physics aside, I'm not an astrophysicist, okay? Or a rocket. But you get what I'm saying? It's going to space. I don't care if it's a trash truck or a piece of gum or whatever. So how do we know that we have a hope that is beyond this life? Here's the thing. In Christ is what it says. In Jesus. We're in Christ. We're not next to Christ. We're attached to Christ. We're united with Christ. What happened to Jesus? Jesus did not stay in that grave. Jesus blasted out of that grave. And he is right now living and ruling and reigning. So you know what is true of you? Oh, if your life is united with him, if you're attached to him, you will not remain in the grave either. Right? You have union with God's son. You have union with God's son. And later on in this letter, God is, Paul, excuse me, is going to say that God has made us alive. This is what the Lord has done. And think about it. Jesus was resurrected from death. So one day you will for sure be resurrected and raised from the dead as well. That's the gospel. We call that glorification. So I've used three fancy words. The first is our justification. This is our rescue from darkness. We've also talked about our sanctification, our ongoing present tense rescue. Every single day, we're, in, we're living out the family values of the family of the king. And because we're united with Jesus, and Jesus is right now ruling and reigning in heaven, well, that means you'll land there too if you are attached to him by faith. We call that glorification, justification, sanctification, glorification. That's the gospel. And it truly is as if you've been given the best news imaginable. And some of you, I'm sure, perhaps were raised in Christian homes and you've heard this good news, but you've never actually made Jesus central. It's been kind of eh, assumed. If you've always assumed this, I want today perhaps for you to build your life on it, to have joy in God's Son. Maybe others of you, you're struggling to think that this could actually be true. And maybe you have very legitimate questions. I'd love to talk further with you. But perhaps today is an opportunity for you to look at this and say, I need to embrace this. There's a, there's a call to you to faith and repentance, to actually say, I'm going to stake my life on this. God, would you please come and forgive me? Very, very simply. Do you understand what I just did? That's the prayer to become a Christian. It is faith and repentance. I believe this and I turn from this. Jesus, I want you. That is the centrality of Jesus himself. Let's land here and let's just wrap this up now. So we feel the terror of being lost. Feel the terror of being lost. Number two, we, 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 we see the reality of, of Jesus himself. We, we know the reality of Jesus himself. The last thing here, the last thing is we embrace the very ordinary means. What does it mean to be a Christian? Are you bored with Jesus? That's a serious question. Maybe, maybe you do need to take the next step. How does anybody even come to know this? And how do you grow after you leave here? Okay, I'd like you to flip back to page 44. Because the context of this is very, very interesting. 
verse 4, verse 5, all of their underlined words over there. There's something very ordinary that happens that leads to supernatural and extraordinary. Verse 5 and verse 4. Paul says of this, well, he says that you have faith in Jesus. Paul says in verse 5, of this you heard in the gospel. You've heard this before in the gospel, in the word of truth. Verse 6, it says, this, since the day that you heard this and you understood it. Verse 7, he talks about just as you learned it, you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was the church planter. All of this extraordinary, amazing thing. Verse 9, knowledge, understanding. Verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. So what's that supernatural rescue plan? How does that happen to people? Do you get it? How do you get that, that goodness into your life? Hearing. Uh, you, we heard that you heard. We pray that you hear. We're going to pray that you get this in your ears and into your heart. Hearing is the ordinary means that the lights of illumination turn on for people in darkness. Do you know that? You're your understanding, you understanding right now, and that supernatural work could be happening and people could be moving from death to life. That happens as people hear and they put their trust in Jesus today. This is important because this doesn't mean you don't need to get zapped. You don't need to have an ecstatic experience. Perhaps you will. I doubt you will. I don't know. But what happens? How do you continue to walk? What's the ordinary means of this getting into your life? You hear You repent, and you believe. Those are very, very ordinary things. Very, very ordinary things. So if you are here, and you are in darkness, here's what you need to do. Hear and receive the hope of the gospel. If you're here, and you are on the fence, and you have a lot of questions, questions are good, but often questions crowd out this very, very ordinary thing. Hear. Jesus Christ came for me. Believe and trust yourself. Take a step towards that in faith. It doesn't mean you have perfect faith or all the answers figured out. It's a step towards that. Because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let me pray. We'll see if we have time to do a couple more questions, couple questions. God, thank you for your abundant love. Thank you for this picture of rescue and salvation. I pray that you would stir us to not be apathetic, but to be moved to faith and repentance in Jesus' name.